As you can see in this room this morning, we're quite full. A little bit of a sardine can thing going on in here this morning, and we, we're, making, we're making do of it. Um, I want to make say this before I jump into the text this morning. We're making provisions to do some overflow here in the next few weeks, getting ready for Easter, but also going beyond that so that we can have space to accommodate more people as God continues to grow our, our church. Um, so just be prepared for that. We will be asking, and we'll talk about this in our members meeting next Sunday, we'll be asking families that are members of this church to do a rotation down to the other end so we don't have to have ask guests to come in here when they come in at the last second, you know, or they don't get, they get here at normal time and they can't find seats together. We don't ever want that situation to happen for our friends who are, visit, who are, who are trying to find out about the church. So we will be... Um, having people on a six or seven or eight week rotation, however, however many times, so that we ask families, five to six, seven families down there each Sunday. So just giving you a little heads up on what that's going to look like. And we hope that you will both enjoy, enjoy doing that for the service of this church, but also glory in the fact that God's doing something in this church that is just beyond our comprehension. Praise be to God. All right. So as I said earlier, we're getting back into this Text in 1 Corinthians, Paul's been uh, really hammering away at the wisdom of the world and how it does not, um, it's not, it doesn't find a place inside the church. And, uh, and so we're going to pick up back up and I'm going to connect with what some of the things that um, our brother Ben dealt with last week. To get us there, let me just ask you a question. Have you been a part or been a party to a conversation uh, about a topic that you're certain you know nothing about, but you're going to fake it? Because you don't want to show that you don't know anything about the topic. Have you ever been that moment? Have you been that person? Be honest. I've been that person. I have been that person many times. Um, you pretended to know more about something than you actually did to appear what? Cultured, knowledgeable, respectable, perhaps. We've all been there. We, we've done it. Um, and, and, you know, we feel like that knowing a lot of s- stuff helps us, like, show that we are, like, acceptable to other people. I figured this out early in our marriage, or actually early in my relationship with Amanda. The very first conversation we ever had, we met in seminary. We were part of a a group study, and we got to talk afterwards for a few minutes. We started talking about SEC football. So those of you who are football fans, you can turn it off for now. Um, But we got to talking about this, and I, who lived in Kentucky, had lived and went to East Tennessee for college. And my best, some of my best friends were students at University of Tennessee, and they took me to Tennessee football games. And so I just thought I knew a lot about Tennessee football until I met a daughter of Tennessee um, and Amanda, right? And um, she quickly reminded me that I really don't know anything about Tennessee um, football, right? So she's, again, she's a daughter of Tennessee. She's uh, a part of a family that's multi-generational graduates of University of Tennessee. It's, it's quite amazing. I, on the other hand, am not a son of the Tennessee. I'm from Virginia. Um, I am kind of adopted into our state. But I love the traditions of Tennessee, and I love going to football games, and I had been to quite a few at that point by the time I had met Amanda, and it did not stop me, even though knowing that she's from Knoxville, Tennessee. I mean, like, seriously, guys, bleeding orange, right? It did not stop me at that point, um, at that time, to actually show that I pretended to know more about Tennessee tradition than she did. It was quite embarrassing. Um, I had overplayed my hand. I knew very quickly that I had made a grave mistake in our first conversation with Amanda. But funny story is, I walked away from that conversation, texted some people I knew back in Lexington, Kentucky, and I told them I, married, I met the woman I was going to marry, and it came true. So, um, so God was still merciful nonetheless, right? 
Because I love the atmosphere, and I love the tradition, and I loved everything about it. But, but Amanda, you know her, she's on a whole other plane when it comes to Tennessee, UT Knoxville tradition. I mean, she just knows it. Let's get in there. Like, she is a treasure trove of useless information about UT Okay, treasure trove. If you ever want to just know useless information about Tennessee, just go talk to her. She will give you everything you ever want to know. Sometimes we just, like myself, we just want to flex, right? We want to flex and pretend we know more about something than we do. We want to pretend that we're wrestling, like we, that we have more knowledge and more wisdom about whatever is going on in life, and we just fake it till we make it. And in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is confronting in these early chapters is he's showing this church that earthly wisdom has really no benefit for them. That they have a wisdom and access to wisdom that's far greater than what they have been tapping into until this point. And so Paul is seeking to point the church to the wisdom of God revealed at the cross of Christ, which they themselves, though they may be believing it, still found it unnecessary and as, as secondary to their own understanding of how life works apart from the cross. So in other words, you have this church that Paul's preaching to, and you're saying, you, have, you need to grow up in the gospel, and you need to understand the gospel as central to everything you are, and you haven't gotten there yet, church. And so today as we pick back up where Ben left off in chapter 2, we're going to take a deeper look into the practical distinctions of what it looks like when people are spiritually awakened, when people are made new by spiritual wisdom as opposed to natural wisdom. So here's the big idea for this moment. The church has confidence. You and me, we have confidence in the wisdom of God because... You and I possess a, the mind of Christ, which enables us to discern and live in a world devoid of spiritual life. And how much do we need this today, church? We look around us and we go, I don't even know where to start with all this. Well, the first place to start is not by railing against the, the ignorance of our world, but the first place to start is to stand before the cross of Christ and let him change us through his spirit and through the gospel. So as, ben noted, as I noted earlier, Ben walked us through the first part of this text last week, 6 through 13. And he shows us in Paul's teaching about spiritual wisdom and the ultimate source of this spiritual wisdom. Um, it might be helpful to remind ourselves that this, this topic didn't start here. It actually starts back in verse 10 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers. This is the central thesis, the central aim of Paul's letter in these first four chapters. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. So then what we're doing is we're coming back to this idea. He's been, um, it, it's what Paul has been hammering out for these last few verses between verse 10 and now. He's been hammering around the futility of human wisdom and the, and the giftedness that we, we tend to want to make the central reality of our lives. So many times Christians will say we believe the gospel, but we then put the gospel on a shelf once we get saved, and then we still live within our own power and our own abilities. We don't live with the spirit and dwelt power that we have in Christ. Has been, we have access in Christ. And so what he's showing is how earthly wisdom pales in comparison to the foolishness of the cross, which is the substance of true spiritual wisdom. So verse 125 says, The foolishness of Christ is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so what now Paul's doing now as we move into chapter 2 is he's taking us on a deeper dive into this foolishness of God. 
into the foolishness of the cross and showing us that's where real wisdom begins, where real wisdom is. And namely, here in verses 6 through 13 that Ben talked about last week, um, he, he showed us that, the spiritual, that this spiritual wisdom is wrought by the revelatory and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, which applies the truths of Scripture to our hearts, both the promise of the gospel, the new gospel life, and frankly, a new love for God's law that's not accessible to us outside of the work of the Spirit inside of us to love the law of God. So it's important to us, church. This is important to us as much as it was, important, as it was to the church in Corinthians back then because of this. And, I, and I'm, I'm going I'm to dovetail off something Ben said specifically that I thought was very important. The latest zeitgeist. Now, if you don't know what that word means, here's what it means. The defining spirit of the age. The latest zeitgeist simply won't do for us. Can never do for us. The new insights about marriage, the new insights about uh, a gender, the new insights about race, the new insights about economics, they won't do for us. Not only because they're, not, they're opposed to God's law and opposed to God's creation, but ultimately our assessments of the world in the natural person are limited. They, they just won't get us where we need to go. And then Paul says the source and the center of this wisdom that you and I are longing for is Christ. So the latest fad, the latest societal impulse, whether it's in Corinth some 2,000 years ago or in the 21st century church, it just won't help us. And so this, so just as was the case for the Corinthian church, the latest zeitgeist cannot be so influential. It can be so influential for so many Christians, right? We know this. We see Christians being tempted by it all the time. And they feel the need, they feel the need to accommodate into these things. Why? Because hopefully they're giving them the best read. They just want to make sure that they have a footing to share the gospel. But the problem with that is that's just pure foolishness. Because the only the gospel can actually awaken, only through the work of the Holy Spirit can awake people to true life. And so just accommodating ourselves to the new insights of the world doesn't actually help anyone get to Christ. It just doesn't do that. It just won't work. So then Paul turns again, again and again through both this letter and through all the letters that he wrote. He says to his church in every one of the letters, behold Christ. Christ crucified for you, that he, he is just for you. He is your justification. You're not justified by your knowledge about this subject or that subject or this. Again, this, is, this goes on both sides of the aisle, the right or the left. It doesn't matter in our culture. Like we, We're not justified by those things and how much we know about something. I'm not justified to be Amanda's husband because I know enough about UT football, although that was a factor for her. Let's just be honest, okay? Um, but the reality is, like, I'm, that doesn't justify me. It doesn't justify you. And, and the church in this age, if it wants to make a headway into these powerful winds that are being blowing in our direction, is we got to put our heads down, put our blinders on, and keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the crucified Christ. So then this is the question that we're going to work through the rest of our time this morning. Is what does it look like when Christians look like or live like natural people? And what does it look like when Christians live like spiritual people? That's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. Because remember, he's talking to the church. He's not speaking to the outside world. He's talking to the church. So let's read again, verses 14 through 16, just to get our heads around it again. Um, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
And he is not able to understand because they are spiritually discerned. Let's just pick up right there. Let's consider for a second the perspective of the natural man Paul's trying to expose here and show us why, the, why it doesn't work for the church. The natural person here in Greek, and I don't, I don't usually like to do this, but I think this is helpful this morning. The word is psychikos, right? so for like psyche, right? And so the natural, inst- and what it means is the natural instinctive nature of a person, i.e., they tend to their own natural animal instincts about life, and that's, what, that's, the, that's the limit of their ability to discern life. It, and, and to be clear here, this is not inherently sinful. Because remember, God's the one who created this in the beginning. It's sinful because it's been corrupted by the fall, yes, but, it, but, but in terms of a, of a natural person's, it doesn't mean that they're, um, they're, every insight that they have is going to be an, an naturally sinful. Okay, so we, we don't need to go run down the road and say, well, everything that the world gives us is just folly and we just need to, no, God uses in common grace doctors and teachers and, and all kinds of other people and they must use those things appropriately. Sometimes they don't. We see the law that they're not doing that in our day. But just make sure we understand when we talk about natural person, we're not necessarily, and Paul's not necessarily talking about the sinful person, the fallen person, although we know the natural person is fallen, Okay, so make sure you understand the distinction there. All right? What Paul has in view is mankind's most natural state in his present state of separation from God. That's what Paul has in mind here. His most natural state in his present state of separation from God due to the fall. And our confession wonderfully helps us here. One of the confessions we hold to, the Second London Confession. Let's, let me just read a couple portions of it. Chapter 6, paragraph 1. God created humanity upright and perfect. So that's good news in the creation, Adam and Eve, right? He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they had broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act because he had purpose to direct it for his own glory. But if you look at paragraph 2 at the end, and you can go back and look at this on your own, all became dead because of that reality, all became dead in sin and completely defiled of any capability on parts and soul and so that was the result of the fall. This is where natural man is born. This is where we are. This is where we begin. And every man, woman, and child begins here. Like you're not born, okay? Like your baby that you love so much didn't, wasn't born a blank slate. He was born in the, in the posterity of Adam, fallen Adam. Okay, so this is, this is where we begin. I know you love your children, but they are dirty, rotten sinners too. Okay? And you don't, it doesn't take long for you to figure that out, right? It doesn't take very long if you're a parent. You don't, you don't know, you get it, right? But then in, in chapter four, I mean chapter six, paragraph four, he says, "All actual transgressions arise from that first corruption, as I just mentioned. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic towards all that is good." Yes. What wonderful truth for this! That this is what the church has been teaching and preaching for ages, and we need to be reminded. We stand, like I said many times, we stand with the church in all ages. And we read the Bible with all ages, and, and, and it's only when we don't do that that we end up kind of running into error in different, direction, different directions. And so then when Paul goes on here, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, that's what he's getting at. Most notably, that his natural disposition 
The word here for accept is hospitable. His natural disposition is not hospitable to the Spirit. Okay, this is what it means to be natural man. And again, that's that poor, poor, uh, core tenet of Christian orthodoxy, that all men and all women and all children are born into sin, and we are corrupt to the deepest parts of ourselves. Now, now make sure we say something here um, that needs to be said. Total depravity does not mean that you and I are as bad as we could be at any moment. It just means that we're capable of doing the greatest evils, even though we think only guys like Hitler can do that. Total depravity reminds us that there's nothing good in us. Even the good parts that are part of us are unrighteous rags to God. And so that's what we're getting at when we talk about he does not accept the things of God because his spirit, his body, his natural disposition is not hospitable to the spirit. And he goes on and says, and they are foolish to him. So he even goes a little bit deeper, right? The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They are foolish to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual matters will always feel strange to the natural man. They will always feel a little forced to the natural man. Even perhaps a bit silly to the natural man. So that's why the gospel is folly to him. I mean, who in the world would write up a story about God sending his own son, who is God, to die on a cross for sinners? We would not have written it that way, amen? That's not how it works. So we're not implying that natural man can't deduce logic of the gospel. We're not implying that they can't read the Bible and see some of the overarching themes of the Bible. What we're saying in this doctrine, this very, very important topic, it means that man remains unaffected by those truths of God in their natural state. They can read them. They can exposit them. They can study God's word. But they do not know the power of it. They don't even know the transformational power. That's why he uses the word they're unable to understand. Very helpful, isn't it? It's not merely a willful rejection, which of course it is, but it's a depraved disposition that blinds them from tasting the goodness of the gospel. So if you met somebody, even when someone grows up, grows up in church, and it's just like all of a sudden they just kind of go wackadoodle one way of the direction, and you go, why, how in the world? Well, it's because this doctrine helps us see that. There are many people who can get in the church and fake it till they make it. Or don't fake it, and then or they just stop faking it altogether. And we get shocked by that sometimes, do we not? And it's not because it's because ultimately, and, and, and listen, let me talk to my teenagers for a second here, even my children in here. This is why I, my faith for my children is not your faith. And your parents' faith for them are not your faith. They transfer, they're trying to teach you their faith, they're trying to show you the beauty of this, but ultimately, this is yours, and only you can stand before God, and only you know what's going on in your own heart and spirit. And you must stand before God, and you will stand before God. You will. But until... As Ben, uh, last week, the Spirit reveals. The Spirit does the work of regeneration. The Spirit does the work of illumination in our hearts and in our minds. We, we can read Scripture all day long. We can be a part of church activities, but we may never actually get it. Why? Because these are spiritually discerned realities. The gospel is a spiritually discerned reality is what it says there in this text. It's a spiritually, in other words, if you look at the CSB in this, they're spiritually evaluated truths. 
And because they're not spiritual, they can't evaluate the things of the gospel because they don't have the spirit within them. Mankind can only evaluate from earthly and material perspective. Friends, if you've been a part of the church and you're sitting here cold and dead, I am begging you, get on your knees before Christ and get it right now. Maybe the Spirit will use those words to you this morning. Stop faking till you make it. Get out in the light and let the gospel, let the work of the Spirit wash over you anew. Give up your natural man tendencies. So what's the implications for us as we move into this? What I believe we need to see here, what Paul wants us to see is, at essence, what Paul's saying to this church. Again, Christians. They've been living like natural men and women, and they've missed the benefits of living like spiritual men and women. In fact, that's what he'll get to next week as we get into chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. We'll come back to that next week. Paul's saying, you, this has got to end. Remember, though, he's still addressing them about their faith. Remember back in early on, he still celebrates the fact that they have faith. They're just not growing up in it. Because a natural man cannot evaluate spiritual or eternal things. And so what does natural insight can be helpful? We don't reject it out of hand. But what we've been given in Christ is spiritual. We could not know it without Christ. We could not know it without the Holy Spirit. The natural man will always evaluate the gospel as folly and unnecessary to himself. And I want to say this to us right here. This is where the danger is for us as Christians. And you, and you hear words like gospel centrality, and, but this is what that ultimately means. Is that our justification, our sustenance, our stability, all of that rests in Christ. And the natural man cannot see the gospel, so therefore what does he do? He may say he believes the gospel, but ultimately he's not leaning on the gospel the truth of Jesus Christ, and therefore cannot be transformed. That's why he's still runs and figgles around in all kinds of sins. Even Christians are tempted to say, yes, I believe the gospel, but surely I need more than the gospel. Right? This is what legalism does. This is what fundamentalism does. This is what, this is what, we, this is what we're talking about when it comes to being a rich gospel community because we, we ultimately know that it's not just the gospel that saves us, it's the gospel that keeps us. And it keeps us from this point until Jesus returns. And so for the Christian who takes his eye off the cross, they're taking their eye off the very sustenance that they need to keep themselves standing firm until Jesus returns. Because ultimately natural man's tools for evaluation are only his own faculties and they're derived from his own self-preservation. And so all human verdicts can only be preliminary. But the Christian knows and understands that only God can give final verdict on any matter, whatever that matter may be. Those who are in Christ have the ability to do so much more. So what's the difference between for this for the Christian, the one who's truly a spiritual man? Let's keep on with Paul's thought here. Verse 15, the spiritual person, pneumakos versus psychikos, right? Animal and saying pneumakos here is the man who's spiritual. He judges all things, but is in himself judged by no one. For the one who understands the mind of the Lord is I mean, so, so for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's unpack that a little bit. He judges all things. It means the spiritual man has in some sense 
the ability to evaluate everything and, and evaluate it at least from the perspective of truth, from the perspective of how God created the world as it is and it allows us to see things beyond what we would naturally be inclined to do. This is not saying, I want to make sure we're clear about this, that this, that this man or this woman has a different natural endowment for wisdom or discernment, which is exactly what the Corinthian church was looking for. See, Christians were benefactors. We're benefactors of God's grace. We're benefactors of God's gracious revelation of himself. And we're also benefactors of the Spirit's calling and the Spirit's regeneration and the Spirit's illumination so that we might be saved. Christians are to engage the world in truthfulness with our unbelieving neighbors, but we dare not have the attitude of superiority over them. See, they, we can get into that whole finger wag thing with the world around us and say, oh, you silly little world. I have so much more insight about what life is about than you. Please don't be that person. That is not what Paul is commending here. He's not commending to you or me that we can judge all things in some sense that we can just kind of lord it over the world. And that's why he keeps on going on. But he also reminds us, you also don't need to be judged by anyone. The spiritual man needs not worry about the unspiritual judgments of the world. And this phrase is in here probably because, most commentators believe, he's alluding to the pushback that Paul routinely got by the, the super apostles in the Corinthian church who were always kind of lording over and they took issue with Paul's style, his speaking, his countenance, whatever it may be. These Super apostles, and you can read into 2 Corinthians 2, were a consistent thorn in Paul's side throughout his ministry to this church. They were self-imposed leaders in the Corinthian church, and they were not charitable to Paul. They, were not, they flaunted their wisdom and their knowledge and their skill at Paul's expense. So this, this idea here, Paul is probably clarifying, I am not worried about your judgments of me. And so like Paul, the church, the Christian needs not give into the crushing weight of natural man's assessments about the things that have been revealed to us through the Spirit. Amen? Amen. And through the Scriptures. Again, we're not free in saying such things that we just, that we have, no one can judge us. We're not saying that we're free to live on an island unto ourselves with our Bibles. A lot of harm has done been done to the church by men who sat in their own studies and not with the church and not with the church of all ages and study their Bibles and they come up with all kinds of crazy doctrine that has hurt the church. Paul is not suggesting a kind of naked priesthood here, right? That's not what he's suggesting. Not suggesting a naked priesthood who feel free to read the Bible in isolation. Dangerous. As I have said many times, and I will continue to stand on this, we read the Bible together. The church is important for that very reason. It's very important that we study God's Word in here. If you're not in Sunday school, get, them, get here for Sunday school because we have adults reading the Bible and studying the Bible and discussing the Bible in here. We have kids' classes. Why? Because we do this not as a program, but as a people who read the Bible together. And we do it together and we don't just read it with us. We read it with other churches. That's why we have associations of churches like we do. 
a pillar network, and so on and so forth. We don't just read it in our modern association of churches. We read it with the associated churches that have gone before us. Because ultimately, when you have a whole lot of people speaking of the Bible, eventually error starts to stand out, yes? And you can avoid error when you start working and living and, 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 and this. And that's why we don't have a confession in our church that we wrote. We have a confession, the New Hampshire Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, why? that was written hundreds of years ago. Because I'm not that smart. I hope you know that. I'm just not that smart. And the elders, as long as I love them and they're brilliant men and they're loving shepherds, they're not that smart either. And they would be the first ones to tell you that. And so we're going to stand on a confession that has weathered the storms of life. And that's why we stand, that's why that is so helpful. Our doctrine wasn't concocted by you or me or me sitting in isolation. I wrote down some, that's dangerous. See, Paul's opponents in the Corinthian church were likely not of the church. or They were lording over the church because they, at the end they were not willing to submit themselves to God's work and they weren't really to submit themselves to one another in the work of the Spirit in the church. See, natural man forms his opinions only on his own observations by natural means, but even then it is not, they're not willing to submit to the natural truths he sees. That's what Romans 1 is all about. They take the things of the world and they distort them, they twist them around. And you and I will take that text and we'll just look at the outside world. But even Christians who won't submit themselves to the body of Christ will still fall into the same trap. Whether we're conservative-leaning or liberal-leaning, we can still distort the word of God to suit our own needs. No, we stand in the word of God with the church, both in this age and the ages before us. And hopefully propelling the church into the ages to come. So there are many people in the world who still claim, in the church who still claim to be Christian, on either end of the perspective, but many are not meaningfully part of the church sitting under the preached word and engaged in the sacraments of the church. That's why it's so important to us why we worship and the way we worship here at Grace. Because the reason why these people are not meaningfully engaged in the church, at least in my assessment, is they keep, they keep a safe distance so they don't have their views challenged. That can be at least one reason. Or... They refuse to be part of a church because they don't, want to, they don't really want to stand with the church. They don't want to have their views changed. Like they don't want to become, they, they, and I'm sorry, they, they stay with the church because they don't want to be a part of the church until the church accommodates to their views. So whether on one end, I'm not going to be a part of the church if you don't accommodate my view of marriage or my view of gender or my view of whatever. But equally on the other side, we have people who have been a part of the church all their life, but they are leaving churches because they believe that if you don't stand, you don't stand for the American flag, you don't stand for all these things. Like, friends, both of those are extremes that do not comport to the scriptures. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. But ultimately, that's not the cause. That's not the gospel message. See, and so when, when Paul comes in here and he says to them, you shall be judged by no one. What he's saying is, is you don't have to be judged on either end of this perspective. You don't have to, don't have to cower to, in the face of the whims of a faithless world. So whether it's happily just kind of blindly letting, you know, I hope this... Look. Drag queen hour at the library, the Christian can say is wrong and it's evil and it's wicked and we can even go so far as to say that's parental dereliction. I hope I used that word right. We'll find out later. 
One of you guys will tell me if I didn't. Um, whether left-wing or right-wing, the church, the Christian stands on God's word is willing to speak to the abuses and the, and, the, and the manipulations on both ends of the perspective. Standing on God's wisdom will come at a cost, though. I've seen it. I've seen it among my pastor friends. You will either be called an unloving, bigot, white supremacist on one side, or you'll be called on the other side, you compromising liberal because you won't stand with us in the culture wars. I've seen it happen on both ends. The church has no space for this, and I'm glad to say that. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't speak up, we don't mean we don't teach, we don't, and we don't. I mean, I had a conversation with another pastor in our city this week who has very different views than I would. Very different views. Left views. And everything's love. Can I have an enjoyable conversation with him? Yes. But do I need to speak to him about where I believe that he's got love wrong? Yeah. And we should. Why? Because the spiritual man has the mind of Christ. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Paul says. Paul is saying here that there's never been a man who could ever instruct the Lord on what is right and good. And the world and all their natural dispositions thinks that they know better than God. The world is... And that's what the world seeks to do, right? They seek to cast all things under the judgment of their natural insight apart, of God, apart from God's sovereign and just kingship. Their judgment is, at best, though, finite, arbitrary, or emphatically motivated to reject God's rightful rule over their life, which is probably the, the case, right? That is the case according to the Scripture. So the Christian can say, let me just go ahead and put some of the fun topics out here for us. The Christian can say, though, and, I, and what I'm trying to get at, Paul would be the one standing here in this, in this position. The Christian can say that race is a very real problem in many corners of our culture, but we can also deny that CRT and intersectionality are tools that we can employ to address those things. We can say those don't work. They don't work. In fact, let's just be honest, they're probably making things worse. The Christian can also say to the world that attempts to redefine marriage or gender or binary is a. We can say that that's cruel and that's wicked and that's. And, 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 and honestly, it will only lead you to more despair and more hopelessness. We can say that and at the same time sit at a table with members of that community and break bread with them and offer them the gospel of real love, of real grace, and of real mercy. And the Christian is not afraid. This is what, look at what Jesus did. Jesus did not mind sitting at a table with sinners. But we think in our world today we have to choose one side or the other. And friends, we do not. we got a message that's bigger than either side. Oh my gosh, we do. So beautiful. So we have the mind of Christ. And by saying this, we're not saying that Christians get that. Again, get out a drill-free car for dealing with life's most difficult questions. Oh, I believe the Bible, so I don't have to worry about your pitiful little problems you have in the world. No, we're in the same world that they are. So we enter into these same, same troubles and trials with patient, loving, and humble hearts to engage. And we're never free to wag our fingers in their face. So let's just kind of land the plane. To have the mind of Christ, what does that mean for us? If we want to be spiritual men and women here, Always standing and trusting and resting in the provisions of Christ for us on the cross and through his resurrection. 
That, what does it mean for us to have the mind of Christ from this point until we, Jesus returns? Um, I got three quick things. One one, to have the mind of Christ is to have our minds fixed on Christ. You can't have the mind of Christ if ultimately you're not looking at Christ. Looking at his glory, looking at the accomplishments he's accomplished, the, and, and resting in the justification that he's provided for you and me, and dependency in our living within the power, his power within us. So we can't have the mind, if we have the mind of Christ, we must live with minds fixed on Christ. Two, to have the mind of Christ is to have the, our minds formed in humility and sacrifice. Paul reminds the Philippians in chapter 2, and I'll just go over there. We'll read a portion of it here before we finish up this morning. Chapter 2, uh, verse 5, is to have your mind among you that which is yours in Christ. Have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he says here, in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being formed in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so because of that, he goes on in verses 6 through 11 to remind them that because you have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, you have a dependency on the service of Christ for you. You never outgrow your need of Jesus. You never outgrow your need of Jesus' service for you. I don't either. And then he gets into chapter, and in verse 12 through 13 of chapter 2, he says you need to work out your salvation. Why? Because God is working, out it, working it out in you. He's working within you. Again, what does it mean to be humble and sacrificial? Nothing's more humble and sacrificial than to, to, to recognize you need Jesus every second of every day of your life. And that every ounce of your effort to, to work out holiness in your life is God working in you for that main same reason. And then he goes on in verse 14 through 16. Don't grumble in your earthly circumstances, but be thankful to be partner with Christ in his church to work out your calling. That's my version. So to have your mind, the mind of Christ is to have our minds formed in humility and sacrifice, like we see in Philippians chapter 2. And then last, to have the mind of Christ is to be connected to the community of Christ. The local church should hold the highest, prim, uh, uh, highest place for all Christians in terms of community. You and I, cannot do this alone. You can't form the mind of Christ in you alone. You can't form the mind of Christ in you an hour and a half a week in this service. You form the mind of Christ by being a part of this body of Christ, studying the Bible, Sunday school, small groups, whatever we do here. The mind of Christ requires us to be connected to the community of Christ. Friends, because Christ has been crucified, he's dead and buried as we get prepared for even easter here in just a few weeks we can joyfully cultivate the mind of christ so as to navigate the stormy travails of this life together as god's people until jesus returns amen all right let's pray father help us this morning as we finish up and as we come to your table this morning jesus as we come to this table this morning may we come even more needy than we would ever imagine Father, for those in this room who have not repented and trusted in Jesus, may this be the day that that happens. For those of us who've known Christ but perhaps need to repent and, 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 
and walk afresh and anew in the promises of the gospel. May that happen and they be visibly demonstrated as they come to the table this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and kindness in these things. It's in Christ's name.